Good morning again. That wasn't very good. Like, are you guys sleeping or what? Good morning. Thank you. Hey, I want to uh, share some uh, good news uh, about uh, Pastor Matt and, and uh, Aaron is, no, don't start that rumor. That's not true. Pastor Matt actually um, graduated with his master's degree from Western Seminary yesterday. So it would be super cool if everybody just throws him a text today and his phone like blows up over. Just say congrats and send it and take two seconds. And if you don't have his phone number, go on the website and find it there, right? And, and you can do that. That'd be awesome. Uh, today we're going to continue uh, our series in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. And we come across a story that to many is, is really quite confusing. Because here's the deal. God is going to ask Abraham to do something that you and I, we're probably not okay with. And if you don't think about it very long, if you don't meditate on it, if you don't study it, if you don't like dig a little bit deeper here, the story seems to be saying something about God that we know is simply not true. So, so as we look at this story today, we work through some of these questions that it raises. We're also, also going to see that it has something to teach us about living a life of faith. So as we've seen in previous weeks, God promised Abraham that, that he and Sarah, right, would have this son, Isaac, through the, the, whom the world is going to be blessed. So Abraham, God says, you're, you're going to be the father of this great nation, through his son Isaac. And sure enough, Abraham gets to 9,900, whatever he was, right? And, and Isaac's born, and, and Abraham and Sarah are like, woohoo! Right? The son has been born. Now it's like years later, Isaac's probably like maybe a teenager at this point. Maybe a bit older, but at any rate, God calls on Abraham's name again. And he's done it a lot of times in the past, so nothing new to Abraham. Except for the fact that this time it's a little bit different. This time, God's not saying to Abraham, here I have this promise for you. This time, he tells Abraham... I want you to go do something. And he tells him to go do something that you and I probably couldn't even imagine doing. And from the very first verse of the account, the Bible makes it clear that it is a test, right? God is testing Abraham. Except for the fact that Abraham, I don't think he knows it. He, he just knows that God is telling him to go do something. This is what he said, Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land 
of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Like, what? Do what? Let's just walk through it. Let's break it down a little bit here. The test was not so much a test to produce faith. It was a test to what? Reveal faith. God built Abraham slowly, piece by piece, year by year, into this man of faith. And the test would reveal some of the faith that God had built into Abraham. And so let's just walk through the passage. First of all, notice Abraham's quick answer to the call. He's like, here I am. God says, Abraham, here I am. It's an example of how a man or woman of faith should respond to God, right? When Abraham said, here I am, it meant that he was ready to be taught. It meant that he was ready to obey. It meant that he was ready to surrender. And he was ready to be examined by God. Then it says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Notice here that God called Isaac what? His only son. When in fact Abraham, right, as we know, we remember, had another son, right, Ishmael. Except for here's the deal, since Ishmael was put away from Abraham's family in Genesis 21, as far as God's covenant was concerned, Abraham only had one son. So this test to offer Isaac as a burnt offering was difficult, and yet another aspect, because let's think about it this way, it seemed to contradict the previous promise of God, right? Because God had already promised that in Isaac your seed shall be called in Genesis 21, 12, right? It seemed strange, it seemed contradictory to kill the son who was promised to, to carry on the covenant when it, not, it hadn't even been fulfilled yet. It seems as if God commanded Abraham to kill the very promise that God made to him in the first place. Now look at what Abraham does in verse 3. So Abraham, he rose early in the morning, he saddled the donkey, he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So no sign of hesitation here on Abraham's part. Right, he rises early in the morning. But I gotta think it had to have been like a sleepless night for the guy, right? So I'm gonna rise, I'm gonna take my, I'm gonna put him on the altar for an offering. Abraham's obedience shows that he trusted God even when he didn't understand. And sometimes we say, I'm not going to obey or I'm not going to believe until I understand it all. But to do that is to put ourselves on equal standing with God. And then it says he saddled the donkey, right? The phrase suggests that Abraham did the work personally, right? He saddled the donkey. He split the wood. Like, dude had plenty of servants to do that stuff for him. Abraham did it himself, even at his old age, right? He's like a hundred but no, he's older than that. Maybe it's because you just need to get the nervous energy out. I don't know, but, but he's out there splitting wood, getting ready to go do this. And then they go to the place which God had told them. And, and 
extraordinary trusting obedience, Abraham goes right to the spot which God had told him, even though it would have been easier in Abraham's eyes if God would have asked Abraham to lay down his own life instead of the life of his son Isaac. Right? Isn't that true as parents? Much rather me be sick than somebody I love, right? Story continues, verses 4 and 5. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to these young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we'll worship and come to you, uh, come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. On the third day. Abraham comes to that place when, on the third day, the, the region of Moriah is associated with the Mount Moriah, which is modern-day what? Jerusalem. Abraham has three long days to think about what God commanded him to do. Think about that for a second. I mean, that's taxing, isn't it, on, on the brain? I got, to think, I got to think about this for three days, and I'm going to put my son on this altar and, and light this thing up in flames. He says, I and the boy will go over there to worship. It's the first use of the word worship in reference to God in the Bible. The Hebrew word here literally means to bow down. And so while Abraham and Isaac did not go to the mountain to have a joyful praise. That wasn't the purpose. Probably not praise and worship night. But they did go to bow down to the Lord. And notice how he makes the point to say, we will come back to you. Gives us some insight into what Abraham's thinking. Because we read in verse 6 that Abraham had Isaac carry the wood with the sacrifice. It's one of the reasons why we know he wasn't a small boy, right? Abraham carried the knife and the fire, right? The fire was in this small container of burning embers inside that would be used to ignite the flame. Isaac, not being a stupid kid, right? He knows that something's not right. We got the wood, we got the, like, where's the sacrifice? So he asked Abraham the question, verse 7 and 8. Now Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. <laughs> Like Abraham knew that God would provide a sacrifice, but where? Where's the lamb? God had told Abraham that through Isaac, specifically his descendants would be counted. And if there was no Isaac, there would be no fulfillment of the promise. Abraham knew that, and yet he what? He believed. Book of Hebrews, referring to Abraham's faith, says this in chapter 11, verses 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, uh, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
probably why he said to the servants, we'll be back. So when they were arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham builds an altar. He puts the wood on it, right? He ties up Isaac with a rope. He lays him on the altar. Now imagine the conversation between Abraham and Isaac right now. Like, we don't know what questions Isaac is, like, asking his dad at this moment. But I think Abraham's answer to whatever those questions are is the same as before, right? God himself will provide a lamb. And we know a lot about Abraham's rule in the story, but not much about Isaac's response. And think about it this way, like Isaac's younger, right? He's stronger, he's faster than his dad, right? He's big enough to carry the wood up the mountain. And I'm thinking, like, he didn't have to go along with dad's plans here. Like, hey, dad, I'm out, right? But it tells us something about Isaac, uh, about his character, uh, about, about his submissive heart. At this point, Abraham raises up the knife doing what he had to do. And if it came to that, then listen to, to verses 10 and 12. Then Abraham reached out his hand, he took the knife to slaughter his son. Imagine that, right, dads? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. <clears throat> Abraham's love as a dad. Man, it just had to be so intense. Mainly because, remember, Isaac's the promised son. It was 20, they waited 25 years for this kid to come. And now <laughs> I, I have to offer him up. Abraham had a great amount of faith. And Abraham reminds us That faith in a faithful God will stretch us to the limits, physically, emotionally, socially, intellectually, and spiritually. But here's what the stretching does. It expands our capacity to know God, and in that knowing, discover how to live a promise-filled life. Let's look at what happens next Verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Notice here that God what? still required a sacrifice. It's not like we're going to call off the sacrifice here. No, he provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. This is 
the one place where in the Old Testament indicates that the Messiah would rise again on the third day. And it says uh, through this picture of, of Isaac, right? Isaac's life is this picture of Jesus. And it's very evident here, right? Like both were loved by their father. Both offered themselves willingly. Both carried the wood up the hill to their sacrifice. Both were, were sacrificed on the same hill. Both were delivered from death on the third day. And even though God would probably never ask you and I to do what he asked Abraham to do, I think Abraham's story is unique for sure. Sometimes God does ask us to do things that take us way out of our comfort zones. I don't know about you, but I'm not really comfortable offering my son. There are times that God calls us to do things that we simply do not understand. And if that's you this morning, if you're here and you're going through a confusing situation or a test of some kind, or, or I just think this story can offer you some insights to what's going on in your life, right? And, and what you can do about it, what you can expect. There are three truths. Go ahead and take your note sheets out and follow along with me here. There are three truths about tests that I want you to see this morning. Right? The first one is, is that there will be tests in your life and they all mean something. Remember when you were in high school or college and, and you know, back in the day when we had classrooms and stuff and the professor would drone on for hour after hour? But, but then ultimately the kid in the first row would raise his hand and he'd say this, he'd say, is that going to be on the test? Right? I, I remember in college I was taking a class, the Gospel of John, and mistakenly, we didn't ask what was going to be on the test. And so our professor decided it would be a good idea to have questions from the footnotes of the textbook. Like I never had a test question from the footnote. Thought it was a little unfair personally, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Point is, is that you should want to know, you want to know if you need to know what you're actually learning. And for our purposes as believers, we need to know that, that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word translated test means to be proved by trial. So when God tests us, his purpose is to prove that our faith is real. Not that God needs to prove it to himself, but rather he's proving it to us that our faith is real and that no trial overcomes our faith. So whenever God teaches us something, he will give you the opportunity to put it into practice. Right? There will be an application. He will test you or give you a trial to overcome. So, so why does God test us? Look with me at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. <laughs> Paul has what he calls a thorn in the flesh here, and it was some kind of significant medical issue that he was having. And when Paul asked God to take it from him, this was God's response, right? Instead of removing it from Paul's life, God gave uh, and would keep giving his grace to Paul. 
right? The grace that God gave Paul was sufficient to meet every need, but specifically this need or this test in his life, right? And to do this, Paul had to believe that God's grace is sufficient. And we really don't believe that God's grace is sufficient until we believe that we are insufficient. For many of us, especially in American culture, that's a huge obstacle. Right? Because we idolize the self-made man or woman or whatever, right? We rely on ourselves. But here's the thing. We can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness. We, we can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. And just like Paul was tested by God with this medical thing, we too were tested by God. Well, like here's a, a little tiny stupid test, right? Like, like have you ever said to God, like, God, I'll do anything you ask me to do. Or I'll go anywhere you ask me to go, or I'll wait a million years, or I'll walk a million miles. You know, you just say the word, God. And then here's what happens. Sunday morning comes, right? It's raining cats and dogs, or it's snowing like a blizzard out there. And we think what? I, I, you know, I'll stay in my comfy little house, Right? I don't need to go today. It's like, what happened to, if you ask me anything to do, I'll do it, God. Hey, here's the challenge for you to think about today. Do we really believe that God's grace is sufficient? Here's what we know about Abraham's faith and, and obedience. Not to forget, just because there's a verse in the Bible that says that Abraham was a man of faith, but because there are stories, including this one, that demonstrate that what he took action, right? He got out of bed. He left the house. He went to the place that God told him to go. And we see both in Paul and in Abraham's life, a willingness to trust and to obey God. And there are going to be times in your life when tests comes and you have the opportunity to demonstrate what real faith looks like, right? What real trust looks like. When you get that phone call from the doctor, right, or you lose that loved one, we'll, we'll see what faith looks like then. And you can be sure that you'll be tested. And by the way, that test, that test matters. Heads us into the next truth. Number two, there comes a time when obedient action is the only meaningful measure of your faith. One of the things I love about this story is that, is that we don't have a clue what Abraham was feeling as these events took place, right? We can imagine that he's confused. We can imagine that he's afraid or overwhelmed, right? Makes sense. But when it comes down to it, Abraham's feelings don't really play a role uh, of any kind of significance in the story. It's about what Abraham did that made the difference. Book of James says this about in chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. 
And he was called a friend of God. And you see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith and works cooperated perfectly together in Abraham. If he had never believed God, he would have never done the good work of obedience when he was asked to offer Isaac. And as well, his faith was proven true, was completed, made perfect by his obedient works. What James is arguing here is that faith cannot exist without being active in works of righteousness. Right? His faith in God would have been no avail to him, avail to him if it had not been manifested by his works. So works always accompany genuine faith. Because genuine faith is always connected with regeneration, being born again, right? Becoming a new creation, if you will. There, there's no if there's no evidence of a new life, there's no genuine saving faith. That being said, we know that we're not that, that we're saved by faith and not by works. Let me say that correctly, right? So don't get emails this week. <laughs> you said. Right? It's all grace. Our works in and of themselves don't save us, but they do confirm the extent of our faith. It's nice when the Christian life feels good and when obeying God is the easiest thing that we can do. But feelings come and go. And if you're not feeling it on a particular day, you take comfort in this. That your feelings will never be the most meaningful measure of any aspect of the Christian life, right? It is what you do that counts. You know the best books to read are the ones where the writer just doesn't tell you that this character or that character is angry, kind, or generous, or, or whatever. The book gets good when the writer shows us in action what the character does whether they're angry, kind, or generous. Because the character is what the character does. And your good works won't save you, but your actions will tell you something about the extent of your faith. Jesus told a parable about two sons who uh, a father asked them to work in the vineyard. One said he would, but didn't. The other said that he wouldn't, but did. And then he was asked in Matthew 21, 31, this, which one of the two did the will of the Father? The point of the parable is clear, right? What matters is living for God and not saying the right words. The religious leader, leaders were good at talking righteous talk, but their unrepentant heart showed that repentant sinners would enter the kingdom before they would. Right? And we can take comfort in the fact that our faith isn't measured by our feelings. It's not enough to, to, to feel a certain way. It's not enough to talk a, a, a certain way or be filled with good intentions. There comes a time when the most meaningful measure of our faith will be in the actions that you take. All right, the third thing this morning about test is that each test leads you to the next level of life in Christ. Look with me at Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
and, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand uh, that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, the test isn't without meaning. When Abraham passed the test, he was ready to experience the fullness of God's promises. It's true for us as well. God will bring tests into our lives. And when we pass them, then we move on to God's blessing, right? And the natural question is what kind of test does God give us? Well, the Bible is clear that a test is not a temptation. God doesn't try to, to bait you into something so he can punish you. That's not what he does, right? We call that entrapment. The tests come our way are tests that are opportunities to do the right thing, right? To speak a word of encouragement, to help someone who's been knocked down by life, to show love, or to be patient, or to serve, or to give. Tests that you and I face in life, and there will be, be many, are, are never without meaning, right? They serve a purpose. They give you a chance to measure your faith in the most meaningful way, right? To take action. And every time you respond with obedience, you take a, a step closer to living a, a promise-filled life. Now, I want to just take a moment this morning to say something about why these events had to happen and why God would ask such a thing of Abraham. I, I think one reason his story resonated with the people in Abraham's day is because it helped them understand in a very dramatic kind of way that God is not the God of human sacrifice. Right? He did not require... Abraham to kill Isaac, but rather he intervened at a crucial moment, making it clear that this is not something he requires his people to do. Instead, he provides the lamb for the sacrifice. Remember what God said to Abraham in verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's the first time that love appears in the Bible and it's connected to the concept of sacrifice. I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but I think it's worth repeating. The story of Abraham and Isaac foreshadows the sacrificial death of Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus was the only son of his father. Like Isaac, Jesus would carry on his back the wood that would become the instrument of death. Like Isaac, Jesus would submit to the will of the father. Now, God didn't require Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but he did use the story to foreshadow what would happen some 2,000 years later when Jesus' death on the cross would become a sacrificial act of love. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us here this morning can claim otherwise. We know who we are. We know we need forgiveness. We know we need mercy. We know we need grace. You know, on the Friday before Easter, we gathered here, right here in this room, and we remembered what Jesus went through on the way to the cross at Calvary. We thought about every sin that we've committed was placed on him, that he paid the price and the punishment that we deserve. And we realized that in him we are forgiven, we're washed clean, we're made new. His grace is free, and he calls us to a life of obedience. That's what the message is all about today. And I want to make it very clear that you don't work your way to heaven. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word today.
God, as we stand before you this morning, we want to live godly lives in Christ. And so we ask that you would help us to develop an attitude of obedience, the obedience to your will, and an increasing trust in your word. God, this morning, would you help us to grow in grace, to, to develop the right things to do and to fulfill your purpose that you have for each and every one of our lives. God, that we would 